For our scripture reading this morning, I'll be reading two familiar passages, Psalm 1 and Matthew 5, 1 through 12. I will begin with Psalm 1 and then go to Matthew 5, 1 through 12. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of waters that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Matthew 5, 1-12 Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Our sermon today is from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. James 1, 12 through 18. The book of James, as we know, discusses faith, and, and I like to call it, the, it discusses the quality of saving faith. He describes what a faith that save, saves looks like, and he argues that there, there's no distinction between a faith that saves and a faith that works. In other words, true faith will produce results in the life of the believer. And last time we looked at the transformation of faith, how faith transforms one who is unstable and doubting, and it transforms the way that one looks at his circumstances. The lowly brother and the rich will be changed because of their faith. And today we're going to look at another kind of transformation that occurs in the life of the believer, and I call it the renovation of desire. And this is one of the most foundational changes that occurs in the believer's life. So how would you describe the change that happens when someone enters the kingdom of God? What actually changes in their life? What is actually different in someone who commits to follow Christ? We know that their sins are forgiven, that, that God's righteousness is given to them. But what happens next? There's, there's a conversion of the soul, a, a turning, a reorientation of the heart from serving self to serving God. And the theological word for that 
is sanctification. This is an ongoing process. It's not something that happens overnight. And, and one of the most basic changes that happens during the process of sanctification is a change in our desires, a change in the things that we want. So let's read this passage, and I'll ask you to stand as we read. James 1, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. You may be seated. So the faith that brings us to Christ and the faith that affects our justification is the same faith that sanctifies us and grows us into the image of Christ. If our lives are not bearing fruit, if, if they're not bearing witness to the transformation and the transformative power of the Spirit in our lives, the answer is not to increase your works. The problem is not a works problem. The problem is a faith problem. And so as we look at this passage today, we'll look at something that plagues every Christian at some point and probably on a regular basis, and that is temptation to sin. This has been present in, in all of mankind since Adam and Eve. But how should, we, how should we respond to temptation? What is the way to deal with temptation in our lives? Does it mean that you're not a strong Christian if you deal with temptation? How do you go about defeating the sins of the flesh in the Christian life? If you're struggling against habitual sin in your life, I would suggest that if your focus is on overcoming that sin, you will not be successful. And in order to stop the behavior of sin, you, you focus not on the behavior, but on the desire that leads to that sin. And the analogy that the text gives us is something like this. When a mother is pregnant, the expected outcome is that she is going to give birth. It's the natural sequence of events. She's not going to get out of it. One way or another, there's going to be a baby. And regardless of her feelings about having this baby, if, if she wishes to avoid this situation, she needs to change some, some behavior earlier in, this, in the year. And in overcoming sin, you don't necessarily remain stuck in a pattern of sin for the whole nine months because of, of previous desires. But if you don't change your desires, you will continually remain in this pattern of sin just as surely as a pregnant mother will give birth. So James begins this section here in verse 12 by basically repeating an idea that he opened the book with in verse 2. 
He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And trial here is the same word trial that, that's used in verse 2, but it, it has a couple meanings. It can, it can mean this, this idea of, of trial or testing or examining to, to learn the true nature or character of. And I think that's the meaning that we're seeing here in, in 2 and 12. Trials or, or tests or difficulties, they, they come to us and they examine the true nature or the true character of our faith. That's what happened to Abraham. When, when God tested Abraham, he was testing the true nature of Abraham's faith by asking him to sacrifice his son Isaac. He wasn't tempting Abraham to sin. He was testing him. But unfortunately, we don't just have one test in our life to pass, and, and then we're, we're over. Our entire life is a series of tests. It's not like in, in my profession, I know that I have to pass a test every 10 years in order to, to stay certified. And the, the test is, is relatively difficult, and a lot of people like to complain that it's too difficult and, and somewhat esoteric and, and doesn't test the knowledge that they need to do their jobs. But you know that it's coming up. You, you know when the expiration date is, and you know that you have time to prepare for it. And there's lots of companies that, that like to sell you review courses and guarantee that, that you will pass the exam after taking their course. But the Christian life is a little bit more complicated than that. We don't have deadlines on our exams. We don't have advance warning of the nature of the test or the timing of it. And while we might pass each successive test, we're not really given our final certification until after the last test. James says, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And this phrase, stood the test, is really one Greek word, and that means judged worthy or genuine or authentic. So our, our entire Christian life is a series of tests that is judging whether your faith is worthy or genuine or authentic. It's not that passing each trial makes us more worthy or more genuine, but it, each trial is testing the same thing. It's testing the quality of our faith. And back in verse 2, we saw that testing produces steadfastness. And here in verse 12, it says that those who remain steadfast will receive the crown of life. And there's no contradiction in our belief between salvation by faith alone and remaining steadfast under trial. It's the same faith. It's faith that keeps us steadfast. And we see this in, in Romans as well, in spite of the fact that some people look at Romans as a book that, that emphasizes faith alone. It does not do so to the exclusion of a life that is changed by faith. And I'll read a few verses from Romans 5. It says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now look at what this faith does. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So the, the real question is, what is the key to developing this kind of life that remains steadfast under trial, that develops character and hope through suffering? And the old saying says, suffering can make you better or bitter. 
And the key here is the last phrase in verse 12 that's fleshed out in, in more detail in the rest of the passage. It says at the end of verse 12 that the crown of life is promised to who? Is it promised to those who have their beliefs all put together and their theology just right? Is it promised to those who obey all the right rules? It says it's promised by God to those who love him. At the end of the day, we're judged by our love. The crown of life is given to those who love God. Jesus said the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So the Christian life is primarily about desires and loves and emotions that must be reordered in God's kingdom. Our hearts are broken by sin. This isn't the, the achy-breaky heart of a, of a bad romantic relationship. It's a deeper, more fundamental broken heart syndrome. It's a birth defect. It's something you're born with. And the image I, I carry, and, and I got this from, from studying at Faith Builders, is that, that we basically have a, a fractured heart. Our, our heart is fractured into, into many different pieces. And each of those different pieces are pursuing something different. And oftentimes it's going two different directions at the same time. So on the one hand, we, we want to be loved, but we don't want to be vulnerable. Or we want to feel significant, but we don't want to risk anything. You, you want to do what you know is right, but you can't overcome your temptation and your desire for evil. You want to trust God in the difficult times, but you don't want to let go of the idol that brings temporary relief. But at the end of the day, you choose to do what you really want to do. You, you choose what you want most deeply. Even if we don't fully understand all of our desires, and even if it contradicts what we think we want, the things that we end up choosing are the things that we most deeply want. And so the redemption of the gospel takes our, our fractured, duplicitous hearts, and by the grace of God, it, it brings it back into one organ that has one focus and one desire and one love. This heart, though, is still in a body of flesh, and we will still struggle against the nature of sin that is within our, our body of flesh. But the overall trajectory or the aim of the heart is focused on loving God. It makes me think of a test that we sometimes order to evaluate the physical heart. An echocardiogram is, is the name of this test. It's an ultrasound of the heart. And, and with this test, you can, you can measure a lot of different things within the heart. You can measure the chambers, how, how big each one is, make sure they're the appropriate sizes. You can see how well the heart is pumping. And especially, they, they pay attention to the left ventricle. The left ventricle is kind of the most important um, part of, of the heart because that's what pumps out blood to the rest of the body. And in a heart attack, part of the, the, the walls of the heart dies, part of the muscle dies. And so you might see on this report that part of the ventricle isn't beating, that that part is hypokinetic. But one thing that, that is always in common on these ultrasounds is the heart is in one piece. It's not scattered throughout the body. They don't find part of it in the lungs or part of it under the diaphragm somewhere. It's never been in anyone's throat or on the floor either, despite some people's experiences. But our, our spiritual hearts are much sicker than anything that, that we'll find in a physical heart. 
and the restoration of the spiritual heart by the gospel, though, is more transformative than any physical heart transplant that might be done. And, and it's this spiritual regeneration of the heart that changes the desires and direction that the heart is focused. The, these broken pieces are, are roughly approximated and begin to pump together for a common goal, the goal of loving God and loving our neighbor. So with that in mind, it's easier to understand why that we're not supposed to blame God for the temptations that we find ourselves in. As it says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So why would we even say that our temptations are from God? Well, this is, again, kind of human nature. We, we see it in Adam when God was questioning him about his sin in the garden. In Genesis 3, God said, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And we know the man said, he said, the woman, but he didn't just say the woman, he said, the woman you gave me. And so indirectly, he's, he's blaming God. He said, you know, this, this woman showed up, and, and you're the one that gave her to me, and she gave me of the tree, of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And this pattern continues today. People who commit sins or remain in sinful patterns don't like to take responsibility for their sin. We see it in young children as well. They're misbehaving. You ask them, what happened? They said, well, you know, she hit me. Why'd you hit her? Well, she, she stole my toy, and, and why'd you take her toy? Well, she wasn't sharing. It's always the other person's fault. And as we grow up, we might continue to blame other people for our bad choices, but we're also indirectly, and, and sometimes more directly, blaming God for the temptations that we find ourselves in. We, we think that if we can assign primary responsibility for these temptations, or for the bad behavior onto someone else, then it, it absolves us somewhat of the guilt for the bad behavior. The, the difficulty, though, is, is that we do believe in the sovereignty of God, and, and we know that God is aware of the situations and allows these situations to happen in our lives in which we are being tempted. And we see this most clearly in, in the life of Job. God was, was involved in allowing these tribulations to happen to Job's life. But ultimately, Satan in that, in that story was responsible for the suffering, even though God allowed Satan to do this. There's another um, instance where people might say it, it's a more direct um, example of God tempting someone to sin. In 2 Samuel 24, it says, The anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. Well, in fact, numbering the people of Israel was, was a sin, and God turned around and punished them by sending a pestilence and, and killing 70,000 men. But if we look at a parallel passage to this story in, in 1 Chronicles 21, it says that Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So it, it, I think if we, if we look at them in parallel, it, it would still support that Satan, in fact, was the one who presented the sin, the temptation to sin, to, to David. And even if God puts us in a situation where we, we face temptation, and he does so at least indirectly by allowing these, these situations to occur, it is disobedient to Scripture to blame God for these temptations. One way that, that um, one commentator put it was that 
they, they say that God leads us into trials, and, and as long as we are being faithful in these trials, we can credit God for those trials. He, he is using these trials to, to grow us and to strengthen us. But if in the midst of this trial, if, if we commit a sin, then that trial has by definition become a temptation to us. And that temptation to sin came from Satan or from our own hearts. God didn't himself make that trial a temptation. So I'll admit it, it's difficult to explain this fully, how God can permit situations that lead to temptation without directly being responsible for the temptation. We don't necessarily have to, res- to uh, be able to explain or understand all of that. But at the end of the day, we're still not absolved of any of our responsibility for the sins that we commit. And, and I think at the heart of these two statements that God tempts no one and that God cannot be tempted with evil is the idea of the holiness of God. The nature of God's holiness is such that he doesn't have a tendency to sin, and he wouldn't put this, he, does, he doesn't even, his nature doesn't allow him to, to put a uh, temptation to sin into someone's life because he, he, doesn't, he doesn't involve himself with sin. So if it's not God who tempts us, then James instead tells us that to understand temptation, we need to look to our own heart. He goes further to say each person is tempted by his own desire. And the image here that he uses is that of a prostitute. It's not immediately apparent, but, but as I study this, it's, it's um, interesting to, to look at the language, and it, it makes, uh, makes it easier to understand, I believe. He says we're, we're solicited, we're lured and enticed by our own desires. And our decision to sin then comes, first of all, from our desire for something that is illegitimate. This word lure has the idea of being caught in a trap. And we know that, that it's, depending what animal you're trying to trap, it's more difficult than others. You know, sometimes the mice will get smart and figure out how to take the, the bait without snapping the trap. Uh, one animal that's said to be difficult to trap is a fox. And if you're setting a fox trap, you need to be very careful that you don't let any of your scent get on the trap, or, or they'll, they'll sense it and stay away from it. But if you're using a box trap, it's, you're, you're supposed to put the bait outside the trap for the first day and, and let the fox get that and, and get comfortable with this trap that's sitting there. And then the next day, you, you put the, the bait just inside the box, but you don't actually put it on the, on the trip switch. And each day, as he gets more comfortable with this, eventually you put it all the way in, and he gets caught. But if you put the bait in, inside the box the first day, he, he'll be too wary. He, he knows it's not safe, and, and you, won't, you won't catch him. This other word, enticed, has more of the idea of baiting a hook. And so we're familiar with that. You, you, put, you put bait on a hook and, and throw it in the water. The fish sees this attractive meal wriggling on the hook and, and chomps on it, and it's caught. It doesn't suspect that taking a bite will have these kinds of results. But where, where does the temptation for the fox or for the fish to take the bait that was presented to them come from? It comes from their desires. You wouldn't have a very much success catching a fox with a worm on a hook, just like you would have a hard time catching a fish by putting a piece of meat into a box trap. And it's the same way with our temptations. Our desires are what lure and entice us. 
even if the temptation is right in front of our nose, it really has no power except in the way that it aligns with our desires. And given the language that's used here, I would suggest that this passage is referring to addictive desires and possibly specifically to sexual desires. And there's this a progression of the sin that it describes from, from desire to disobedience to death. It starts small and progresses over time, but the end result is death. And so thinking about particularly addictive desires, I'm not an expert in addiction medicine, but what I've learned is that the brain is, is trained by repeated behavior. So the more we uh, persist in this behavior, the more we're going to want more of it. And certain experiences of, of pleasure or satisfaction release this hormone or this neurotransmitter called dopamine in the brain. And this is a, a basic survival mechanism. So when you eat a, a good meal or um, you complete a difficult task or you have a, a good relationship with friends, that releases some dopamine in the brain. It's what makes you feel good about that situation. And it's what motivates us to eat when we're hungry. We're, we're craving a little bit more dopamine. Or when we're going through a difficult situation, it's what keeps us pushing through because we know that we'll feel good after, after we complete this task. Or as we seek relationship with other people, it, it all, we're, we're motivated and we're rewarded by dopamine. And these are legitimate desires. These are good things to want. And the satisfaction that we, that we feel is, is a good, legitimate satisfaction. But there's other things that we also can do that, that release this dopamine. And it's common addictive behaviors that we're aware of. Nicotine, um, alcohol, sexual activity, social media, pornography, all release dopamine in the brain. And so when we're feeling down, when we're feeling blah and bored, or angry or anxious, it makes us want to do something that makes us feel better again. And so we always go back to something that we've done in the past that releases dopamine. And we, we associate that activity that um, makes us feel better with, with you know, kind of this feeling of, of stress relief. And I say this to, to point out that the, the brains that are most susceptible to addiction, the brains that are most susceptible to developing pathways that crave these repeated illegitimate behaviors are, guess what, adolescents. The teenagers who experiment with addictive behaviors, whether it's substances, sex, or social media, will develop tendencies to return to these behaviors for satisfaction when life gets difficult. It might be 10 years later and they haven't touched this addictive behavior in, in that 10 years, but when, when life gets really difficult, when they face a stress that they haven't faced before, they're going to find themselves struggling not to return to that, that behavior that they associate with, with the good feelings. And this can happen to any of us, but it, like I said, it's most destructive to teenagers. When that behavior is re rewarded with a rush of dopamine, it, it strengthens that pathway and it motivates them to return to that behavior the next time that they feel down. So my challenge is to teenagers, but also to the fathers and parents of teenagers. What, what are you doing? What behaviors are you um, engaged in that, that are illegitimate and that will, will cause you to struggle the rest of your life? Parents, do you know what your, what your teenagers are doing on their smartphones, in their bedrooms? Even if they're not out getting addicted to substances, it doesn't mean that they're not developing equally destructive behaviors 
addictive behaviors by their use of social media and the possible exposure to sexual material. Tom Brokaw uh, wrote a book called The Greatest Generation, and referring to the generation that grew up during the Great Depression and went to fight for America in World War II. These were men of grit and stamina and sacrifice. But I wonder what our generation of smartphone-using social media addicts will be known for. I'm afraid we're, we're losing some of the qualities of the greatest generation because we're, we're getting so caught up in feeding our own um, addiction to our, our um, pleasure. And as a side note, it says that one of the, the ways to overcome an addiction to dopamine is with serotonin, which is another neurotransmitter in the brain. And one of the ways that serotonin is released is through healthy relationships with other people. And so I, I think that that um, goes along with, with scriptural ideas that, that healthy relationships with others, being in, in um, loving, trusting relationships with others is one way to grow in holiness. So it starts with desire, and the next step is disobedience. It goes from the desire of the heart to an act of the will. When desire has conceived, it gives birth. So this is, this is pretty basic biology. Conception does not happen without a cause, and after it's conceived, something will be born. It's just as foolish to think that you can indulge your illegitimate desires and not give birth to sin as to think that conception will not lead to birth. But after giving birth to sin, sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the end of, of desires that are lured and enticed is death. So what's the, the solution? How do we avoid the trap of desires? He says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. The fox taking the bait or the, the fish taking the worm is deceived into thinking that this is a legitimate thing to take. James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Everything that comes from God is good, and everything that is good comes from God. So encountering that the false desires of the heart, the desires that lure and entice us to sin, James calls us not to change our desires, but he calls us to refocus our mind. And to be sure that the key to defeating sin is to ultimately have our desires change. And we cannot attack sin merely at the level of behavior and expect to see lasting change. The heart, we know, must be changed. But at least one step in that process is transformation of the mind. We wrongfully desire the things that kill us because we think that they are what we want. We see this in Proverbs 5, a strong warning against adultery. It starts out with, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding. So he's saying that there's certain things that you need to understand about forbidden pleasures. And he, the chapter ends with, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. So there's something about a cognitive understanding about the destructive nature of sin that, that helps us to shape our desires 
and choices when we're presented with the opportunity to sin. But more important than just understanding the, the nature of sin, it is it's to understand the marvelous power of God, as, as he tells us here. As, as, we, as we consider the goodness of God that did not destroy us, or the love of God that sought to redeem the people he created from the sin that they committed, and as we consider God's kindness to us that seeks our salvation and joy, as it says in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But if we look a few verses earlier here in this chapter, we can see why he says there's pleasures forevermore at God's right hand. Verse 8, he says, I keep my eyes always on the Lord. With him at my right hand, I will not be shaken. So he kept his mind on God. He kept his eyes on God. And he found God to be the source of eternal pleasure. True pleasure is always found in God. The addictions of illegitimate desires are perversions by Satan of the real pleasure that God has designed. And the problem with, with the pleasures of Satan is that they diminish over time, and so it creates a need to turn to other pleasures to try to get the same return. And on the other hand, the, the closer that we get to God, the more rewarding his presence is to us. And then in, in verse 18, we see a different kind of birth. It says, of his own will he brought us forth. Rather than the birth of sin, Jesus brings us the new birth of redemption. It's accomplished by his word of truth. And so as children of God, we are bearing his image as his first fruits. Now, admittedly, it's not an easy process to change our feelings. Even with, with the best of intentions, we can't force our feelings to be changed. And the first step isn't necessarily to deny our feelings or resist them or try to overpower them. The first step is, is to realize that you don't have to be mastered by your feelings. Feelings are not your God. Just because you feel a certain way doesn't mean you have to act on that feeling. But rather than just focusing on changing your feelings, another, another um, avenue to take is, is developing new feelings, new desires, and new loves that will overcome and replace the negative feelings. Just like a recovered alcoholic will always be an alcoholic, he has other desires that are stronger than his desire for alcohol. That desire for alcohol may never go away, but he knows that he doesn't want to give in to that desire just because it's present in his heart. So this, this process of, of developing new feelings is a process. It takes time. It doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes we just need to realize the feelings are contributing to our temptation and sin problem. And the most basic desire is to want change, is to want new desires that keep us from acting on that sin. And one of the keys to developing new desires is the presence of hope. And in the Roman world, hope wasn't well regarded. It was thought of as a bit of a desperation measure. But the book of Romans says we are saved by hope and that we rejoice in hope. And Romans 5, which we read earlier, says hope does not make us ashamed because God's love has been poured out in our hearts. And, and as we hope and, and, and faith are, are, as we know, closely intertwined, and as we turn in faith and hope 
to Christ that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. As we focus on the reality of our condition in Christ, we can develop these feelings of, of love, joy, and peace through growing in our understanding of God and through healthy interactions with others. And so we don't necessarily have to focus on all of our bad desires and changing those, but focus on developing the, the new desires and the new feelings that are ours in Christ. So in closing, I'd like to challenge you with a few questions as you consider your desires. What is it that you want? What, what is at the deepest of your desires? What have you set your heart on? Do you treasure the good and perfect gifts from above, or have you accepted the substitutes offered by Satan? Are you feeding a secret sin in your life that you will that you've justified to yourself? The Bible says, "Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever one sows, that will he also reap." Will you remain steadfast under trial and will God give you the crown of life? If your heart is still broken in pursuing the desires of self, now is the time to submit to Christ. And I would encourage you to talk to someone, find someone to talk to and ask them to pray with you and for you if you have a, a secret sin or if you are struggling with, with desires that are not of God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Let's have a song.